comes to you will never thirst from our hearts flow rivers of living water whoever comes to you will never thirst you that have no money come to drink and eat whoever comes to you will never thirst you're listening to the sermon podcast from house for all sinners and saints we are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Grace, peace, and mercy is yours from the triune God. Amen. Years ago, there was a project undertaken by Bible scholars whereby they were trying to ascertain what, we re- what was really knowable about Jesus of Nazareth as a historical figure. The scholars would take the Gospels verse by verse and vote as to which things they thought Jesus actually said and which they thought were made up later. They wanted to determine the historical accuracy of Jesus' words and actions. Now, there was a lot more to it, and perhaps this is a legitimate academic endeavor, It's just not a question I personally find all that interesting. I could care less, actually, what fancy Bible scholars say is more or less historically accurate when it comes to Jesus' teachings. What I would be game for is if scholars started voting on which of Jesus' teachings were more or less done with his eyes rolled. I mean, there are just some texts where I feel like I can almost hear the annoyance in his voice, like when on the way to Jerusalem, he tells his disciples that he is about to be betrayed and handed over to the authorities and condemned, beaten, and die, and then after three days, rise again, and they're like, so when you come into your kingdom, will I be seated at your right hand, or will it be Steve? You know, the guy was like, really? I mention this because I wonder if this section from the Sermon on the Mount didn't have an undercurrent of, I can't believe I even have to say this to you, to it. But he does. He does have to say these things to us because we, like those who first heard them, are a forgetful people. We need to hear what it means to uphold the two commandments that actually matter the most. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, because we so easily get bogged down in details that we can fail to see the big picture. A couple weeks ago, we were studying the Ten Commandments in the catechumenate class here. The thou shalt nots of the Ten Commandments are pretty recognizable to even the least religious among us. Growing up, I was taught that the law, especially the Ten Commandments, are there because they're God's prescription for our lives. People in our church would say that the word Bible stood for basic instructions before leaving earth, which is unforgivable. (laughs) Basically, the importance of the Bible, then, is that it gives us all the rules we have to keep so that we're right with God. God gave us these rules and a bunch of others the church added along the way, and they are there because God loves you and wants you to be happy. But now I see it differently. Now I think the law is less about God loves you and wants you to be happy and more about the fact that God loves your neighbor and wants to protect them from you. (laughs) And God loves and wants to protect you 
insofar as you are someone's neighbor. It's always about community. That is to say that this strange God we have, who created this world and spoke through fiery prophets and freed a people from slavery and gave them a law and said they were his, this same God who came to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and loved people so completely, this God is strange, but what God is not is distant. This God does not create the world, give us some rules, and then leave us to it. Because what we see in the teachings and life of Jesus is that people matter, and human relationships matter to God. The way we are treated matters to God. And so some laws are established because of that. But laws are made for us, not us for laws. That is to say, there is a spirit behind each law that trumps, at times, the letter of that same law. Now, I know that may sound like slipping dangerously into moral relativism, but so be it. Because our obsession with moral absolutes comes from clinging to the letter of the law as though it can love us and save us, when really, that's what Jesus is for. And you know who got in trouble, like, all the time for breaking the letter of the law? Jesus. Hey, Jesus, your disciples are not washing their hands. Hey, Jesus, why are you eating with sinners? Hey, Jesus, we saw you heal a guy, and it was the Sabbath. And so we see over and over again, Jesus had no patience for that. The Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath, he would say. And that usually shut them up, you know, until the next time. All of that is to say that when Jesus seems to be, what Jesus seems to be doing in our text for today is reminding us of the spirit of the law so that we know how to love one another. That insulting people and being mean to them may not be murder, but it certainly does not uphold their dignity. And again, Jesus rolls his eyes and is like, I can't believe I even have to say this. What Jesus seems to be doing here is reminding us of the spirit of the law so that we know how to love one another. That sexting and flirting and lusting over someone who's not your spouse may not technically be committing adultery, but it certainly does not uphold our dignity or that of the spouse or the object of our lust. Jesus seems to be unfairly raising the bar on us. But in reality... He's just insisting that we do not do violence to each other through loopholes. That we not put our relationship with the law above our relationship with the neighbor. And if that seems harsh and unnecessarily strict, know that he says all of this so that violence is not done to you as well. God loves you and wants to protect you. Which brings us finally to the dreaded divorce text, avoided by preachers <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> this week I asked for your stories about how this text has shown up in your lives, and on two occasions, re while reading the responses, I teared up in public, which I've said before is not exactly my favorite thing. Now, I really try to not yammer on and on about the historical reality in the first century, but what is important to understand is that at the time, if my memory of seminary classes serves, 
If a, divorced, if a man divorced a woman, it was often a death sentence. She relied on him for security and for income. It's not like today when she could just go back to teaching or work in a shop for a while to make her way. She often would not be welcomed back in her father's house. So the reality of divorce for many women was that it sentenced them to a life of poverty and possibly begging. So for Jesus to say, look, just providing a certificate does not get you off the hook. Her dignity needs to be upheld. Well, this was a way of saying that God loves you and your spouse and desires that cruelty and violence not be done to either of you. So this week, as I read your stories, stories of being violently yelled at and slapped and choked and having church folks stand over you and say that God loves you only if you stay with the man who does this to you. When I read about another of you being a 24-year-old woman who was literally abandoned by your husband and then how your church would no longer give you the Eucharist, when I heard of the shame felt by one of you as a divorced man who felt like he wore a scarlet letter D in church, when I heard of loveless marriages that went on for decades, I thought, how the hell is it that the church can manage to take a text meant to protect people and make sure violence is not done to them and then use the same text to do violence to so many for so long? I don't know what to say. I just know that that is real. And if Jesus rolled his eyes when having to reorient his disciples' understanding of things, I can only imagine his reaction to what has been done with his teachings about protecting people. And so tonight, from this pulpit, and under the yoke of this stole, and from the office of a clergy person, and with whatever authority that still manages to hold in this world, I want to offer an apology. As a representative of the Church of Jesus Christ, please hear me say, I am so sorry that this has happened. And if you're someone who has been done violence to you through the Holy Scriptures because of your sexual orientation or your gender or any other thing about your life, I am sorry this happened to you. If you're someone who has had violence, emotional, spiritual, physical, or otherwise done to them in the name of Jesus Christ of all names under heaven, if you've been shamed or excluded or denied what is only God's to give, if you've been made to stay in a situation that denies your humanity or kills your soul because someone said that's what God wants for you, on behalf of the church, I apologize for what that's worth. And let me say this one thing more. We do not serve a distant God, but one who actually cares about how you treat people and how you are treated. People matter. Relationships matter. The dignity of human beings matters. And may the church of all institutions uphold this truth and ask forgiveness when we do not. Amen. If these sermons are meaningful for you, we invite you to support the congregation, and you can do that at houseforall.org. There's a PayPal button there. Also, we'd love for you to come and join us for liturgy. We meet at 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock on Sundays at 2201 Dexter in Denver.
Fill our cup, it overflows. 